Good to be in your midst again this evening, and trust that y'all have had a good day, as, as I did. It was a blessing to uh, visit some of y'all and be in your homes and experience your hospitality. This evening, I would like to start off with a short story for the children. I noticed a number of young children here, so keep your ears out closely as I read this story. It's written by Mary Ellen Beachy from Ohio. Rockin watched his Christian missionary neighbor every day. She knew, he knew that his neighbor visited sick people and prayed for them. He was surprised and amazed how God healed people who were ill because of this man's prayer. One day, Rockin's goat fell and was limping. It would not eat and could hardly walk. Rockin was scared. His family was very poor. What would they do if this goat died? He thought of his neighbor and his prayers for the sick. Would his neighbor consider praying for his goat? Would God care about goats? Rockin decided it was worth asking his neighbor if he would pray. I know you go around praying for sick people and your God heals them, said Rockin. Does your God care about goats? Would God heal my goat if you pray for it? It was an unusual request for the missionary, but he decided, yes, I will come, he said. My God created all things. He made the animals and cares for them too. The men entered the small shed where the goat lay. They knelt beside it, and the missionary placed his hands on the goat and asked God to touch and heal it. Rockin observed the goat in amazement. The goat got up and happily chewed the grass and the weeds that were in the shed for it. The goat had no limp at all. The Lord had immediately healed the animal. Rockin and his family were amazed and happy. They stood in awe of a God who cared about people and goats and they asked their neighbor to tell them about his God. They listened through the whole night as the missionary shared the good news of Jesus' love for all men and of his death and resurrection. He told them that Jesus is alive to help us and forgives the sin of everyone who comes to him. Rockin's family decided to believe on the Lord. They were the first of 22 believers who became a part of the new church in their village. So we have this short story here about the working of God and how that he worked in an animal to bring about change in these uh, people's lives and to bring about the gospel prospering in that village there in a foreign land. Brother John was telling me today about the ownership of this building and some of the history and some of the events that have taken place over the years, and it was an interesting story to me. You know, when, when you purchase a piece of property, why often, well, let me back up. When you buy something small, like, a, you know, let's say you're buying a bag of corn or something off your neighbor, where you can pass them a couple dollars and it becomes yours. And with vehicles and property, it's a little more complex because of the I guess with the nature of those things, we're talking about a lot of money, and so there's often uh, transactions on paper that take place for those things. But whenever um, a transaction is made, then the person that does the purchasing is considered to be the owner of the property, and they, they possess it, and they can do certain things with it. And this evening we would like to look about, look into the subject of the ownership of the body, the ownership of the human body. 
And I ask you the question, who owns your body? Uh, who owns it? Uh, you children, who, who owns your body? Is it your dad and mom? Or, you know, it, and if that would be the case, then at what point does the possession turn to your own ownership? And as we think about that for a little bit, why the Bible tells us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's think for a little bit about our bodies. You know, we have a processor located in our head that is probably way stronger than the strongest computer, although I must confess that, like, when it comes to mathematical computations, that computers can show us up. I mean, you can enter in a long number times another long number, and it will instantly spit out the answer, and it, it will be right. And so... There are some cases that the computer will show us up. But as we think about the five senses of our body that we have, how that those can simultaneously come into our mind and we, we respond with commands and that are transmitted with nerves and muscles and we can talk and smile and give facial expressions and frown and sit down, run, or pick something up or do whatever it is that our mind has told us to do. Um, when we were up at the Heritage Bible School here a couple weeks ago, we heard a story about one young man that one of those long tables, like they would have a commercial plastic top table, that he could stand at the end, jump up in the air and do a double flip, land on his feet and turn, turn around immediately and do the double flip and land back where he started, all in one smooth motion. And, you know, that's a complex set of things that are happening there all at the same time. So... Our body consists of much, but on the other hand, there are some things that it is not. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we would like to consider some aspects of the ownership of the body. First Corinthians 6, beginning to read in verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirits which are God's. And we notice in these two short verses that it tells us about the ownership of our bodies as a Christian person. Um, you know, if you... If you invent something, take a few simple materials and piece them together into some sort of a contraption or useful article, who, who's the owner of that item that was made? You know, it's, it's the person that made it. Um, there was raw materials there, and perhaps he pre procured those. But, you know, the person that makes something is considered the owner of it, and there are rights even to the ideas, you know, they have um, patents that you can get that would actually um, entitle you to the ownership of the concept, not only the particular item that you made, but the concept of which it is consists of. And um, we have a young man in our congregation, as a young man getting toward middle age, Chad Brubaker, that has manufactured equipment to remove uh, birds from ch ch poultry buildings. And he, he chose not to make a patent or get a patent on it because he would, as advised by others, that 
you know, it's relatively easy to bypass it, that people can go ahead and make modifications that actually uh, is almost identical, but yet it's modified enough that they can bypass the patent, and the patent is a very complicated and expensive process. So he chose not to patent his. He was advised just to try to keep on the cutting edge and continue to modify it a little bit, and you'll, you'll be okay that way. But as we think about our human body, says, uh, think about some of the uh, facts that's listed here. Were the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's within us, and it's a gift of God, and you are not your own. You know, for the uninitiated, why, that might be a jolt for us as Christian people. We, we know these concepts, that God is the possessor of our body. And it tells us why. We're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we were bought with a price. And the most expensive price that could ever be had, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son. Our body and our spirit are God's, it says. Not only the physical clay, but what we think about in our spirit and the, the part of our uh, mental capabilities and the part of us that connects with God um, tells us one place that the soul and the spirit are so interconnected that they're nearly impossible to separate in the scripture. Um, but as we think about our body and our spirit are God's, Let's think now about the privileges of an owner. Um, we've established that God is the owner on the basis of this scripture. You know, if, if we buy a house and we, uh, we, we have a right to make, um, you know, use it as we would wish within, within reason. I mean, there may be laws that would control that. But let's say you would buy, one of you or soon, you know, if each of you think through, if you were to buy a house and have it for a rental house, you could set some stipulations on the use of it. You know, you might say that I don't want you to smoke in this house or prefer you didn't have pets in the house. Or, uh, you know, we had a neighbor about 25 years ago that lived in a single wide trailer and they had a pile of Budweiser cans in the front yard and it grew. By the time they moved, it would have probably filled up the pickup bed of a short bed pickup truck. And... <laughs> You know, if, if I would have owned that house, I would have probably set the stipulation of please clean up your pile of cans. That's not to be that way. But, you know, if you own something, you have the privilege to um, say something about the way it's used. We want our possession to be treated a certain way so that it's not abused. And we want it to be cared for as we would, we would like it to be cared for. You know, we don't want the trim broke up or doors ripped off the hinges or the windows broken or some other sort of thing about property. But God also feels that way about our body. He says, I bought you with a price. And remember, it's not slavery. It's loving service on our part because of what Christ has done for us. He says, I bought you, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit your mind. And so just as the owner of a house can state, don't smoke in my house, please. God has some things that he doesn't want our body used for. 
And the first thing I would like to talk about that God doesn't want our body used for is for display. As we think about our bodies, why, you know, along with the fall of man came a major change in the way that we relate to our body. Before the fall of man, Adam and Eve, it says, walked in the garden and they were naked and they were not ashamed. They had full exposure of their body and had no no realization that there was any issue with it. But when they fell, that changed and they got those big leaves and made a feeble effort to try to cover themselves with it. And God came on the scene and they were hiding from him. They were no longer out there eager to meet him like they had been prior, in prior times. And they, uh, God called them to account for it, and he helped them out, took skins of animals, and made adequate clothing for them. And, you know, this is the way it has been ever since. And we believe that outside of a committed marriage relationship, that nakedness is shameful. And... It's only in a culture that is strayed from God that na- nakedness is celebrated. And we, we are getting into that position in our culture. And the clothes that we wear sends a message as we go about life to those that observe us. Think for a moment, young children, if you saw a man that had on jeans and a pair of boots with stitching up the side, and had a shirt that had two pockets on, and the, the pockets had covers that snapped shut, and a long sleeve shirt and had three snaps on each um, sleeve hem, and had a broad-rimmed straw hat on. What would you consider him to be? Maybe even had spurs on the heels of his boot. I mean, you would think cowboy more than likely. And his clothes sent a message of who he was. Or think about another man that had a a gray uniform on and maybe had a band of maybe a lighter gray down each side of the outside of the pant leg and had a badge on his shirt and had a broad flat rimmed flat hat on that was black you know you would think policeman probably because that's that's the image that he puts forth or think to get a little deeper What about a woman that had bright red lipstick on her lips and had abnormally long black eyelashes and some other things that spoke about her? You know, you you would that would send a message as well. And, you know, the way we cover ourselves, God started out with Adam and Eve with a basic covering of animal skins. And the way we cover ourselves today sends a message about who we are and what we're about. And, you know, thinking more about this point, the body is not for display. Uh, Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll notice some verses there that helps to bear this out. Timothy chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 8. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let women learn in silence with all subjection. So it talks here about modest apparel. And what, what is modesty, we might ask? Uh, what, does, what does that consist of? 
Um, you know, God is saying that I want my house that you reside in to be presented modestly. And I would like to just, for a brief and fairly easy to understand uh, definition of modesty, it would be covering the body in such a way that the eyes are not drawn to those areas that are private or personal. In other words, it's covering yourself to where um, you are not, a person isn't attracted to those areas that you don't want people to be looking at. God, as the owner says, I want my house to be presented modestly. Um, I don't want it presented in a way that grabs attention. And I believe that this has to do with how much flesh is showing, first of all, and how much the bodily form is concealed. And you know, as people begin to lose the principles of modesty, uh, things happen. And I think some of us older men have seen it in people to where the hems and the sleeves come up and the necklines go down and they begin to reveal and accentuate the form with the fit of the cut. And as this happens then, uh, you know, more, more attraction is given to the body itself. But as we implement the guidelines of the owner of our body, we'll conceal and we'll work to cover up. And thinking for a moment about on the practical side, why a person that dresses to exploit or dresses to reveal exploits the vulnerabilities of the opposite sex. Um, you know, we have, we as brethren are working and endeavoring to keep our minds pure. And I realize that we relate to a lot more than just church women, but at least within the church, it's important that we can safely observe a woman and feel good about what we're seeing there. And you know, this applies to us men as well. You know, as we go about society, where there's some people that are wearing muscle shirts and shorts and maybe even less than that, no shirts at all. And godly men who recognize God's ownership will keep their bodies covered with long pants that are loose-fitting and shirts at all times and shirts that are not form-fitting and have adequate sleeve lengths. There are many ways that we can show and attract and we, uh, what principle are we living by? First of all, the body is not to, for display. And secondly, then, I'd like to, the next point I would like to notice is that the body is not for decoration. Um, you know, we talked about the covering of the body and now shifting the focus. We want to talk about decorations. And here in this passage, it talks about things that can be added to a person's body to draw attention or maybe even to the person themselves. Um, it talks about gold or pearls or costly array. But we notice here that the sentence starts out, not with. And so that's, that's the owner, God, our owner, we've established, is laying out the guidelines that this is not how I want my body, person's body, to be presented. Um, the fallen heart of mankind attempts to achieve some form of significance by add-ons. And it's important that we recognize those things. You know, men have a weakness to measure their masculinity by faster cars, or louder trucks, or some kind of a powerful position. And you know, you can, in today's society, people will either dress up or dress down. You know, years gone by, 
years gone by, why people, if they wanted to be somebody special, they would really put the clothing on and appear to be somebody special. But you know, today you see people that are trying to grab attention from the opposite extreme. And you know, they might have shreds down their pant legs that probably didn't come there from hard work. And maybe their waistline slouched partly over their four or five or six inches too low over their hindquarters. And, you know, other things they can do. That, I call that dressing down, just in some form or fashion trying to grab attention in some strange way. But, you know, uh, that's, that's the appeal for us men. But the draw for women is to try to measure their feminine significance through their beauty. But verse 10 here offers an alternative. It says the way that God wants us to present his temple is to have good works. Uh, that which become a people professing godliness with good works. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read a couple more verses here that elaborate on this particular subject. First Peter chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be, notice again, the owner is setting stipulations, negative first of all, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. But let it be, the positive, what he does want, let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old times, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection under their own husbands. You know, as we look into this passage, here again we see some do's and some don'ts that were issued by our owner. You're not your own, it said. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. And here is how the owner is telling us what he wants to see. And, you know, there's a problem when men use their strength and their masculinity to exploit women. Uh, Brother John was talking about that today, of some means that a man was wanting to use to attract women. And also it's equally a problem when women use their beauty to attract men. And not only is it a problem when we're out to attract, but it becomes a problem too when we began to compare ourselves among ourselves, maybe man to man, and think about that, well, um, you know, if, if he can do those type of things and it's, it's helpful to him, maybe I can do that or even a little more. That becomes a problem as well. Uh, we can compare our strengths as men or attractive add-ons as women. And there's three areas here that are listed in verse 3. First of all, it talks about the outward adorning of plating of the hair. And I believe as you research into that, it would be that they would have taken maybe even golden filaments or hair from other people and have woven it into their own hair to try to make it more attractive and catchy. And... I think we are very, very blessed in the Mennonite church for the stand that we have of head veilings and neatly combed hair that is not grabbing attention. And so 
I trust that your uh, interest and your commitment to that will be increased and improved. Then also here it talks about the wearing of gold. Uh, thinking about um, putting on of jewelry. You know, there is, in our day, we see jewelry being used in many ways. You know, it used to be maybe bracelets and necklaces and things like that, finger rings, but, you know, anymore it's maybe a, a nose ring or a, you notice a woman at the Walmart checkout lane and as she talks, you notice there's something glowing in her tongue as she talks. She has a tongue stud and, you know, add-ons to try to grab attention. Um, and then it talks about the putting on of apparel. And, of course, that's talking about the material and the cloth of, of itself. And I've talked about some of those angles already. But in contrast to the world's way here, it, um, verse 4, it tells us what it should be. You know, let it not be those things there. It's listed in verse 3. But instead, in, uh, let it be adorned with a heart that is uncorrupted that is fully committed to God and his principles for living and for presenting our bodies. We're instructed to emphasize our character. You know, as a person comes to the throne of grace and yields himself to God and becomes a person that sheds off pride and bitterness and anger and rebellion and greed and arrogance, and there's probably more that could be added to that list, and gets a clear and an honest um, approach to life and meet people with a firm handshake and look them in the eye with love and compassion, that speaks and that is what God says I want to see in a person. Uh, a regenerated heart and all these evils rooted out through the spirit of Christ and we can live in such a way that God is glorified. God, as our owner says, that's what I want. I don't want the attention to be of some add-ons externally, but let it be what's happening inside of you and a love and a caring. God desires to replace all those evils I named a little bit ago with genuine humility and love and propriety. He also wants us to be forgiving and submissive and to depend on others. And as we develop and display these values and put them to practice in our lives, we become a person who God is pleased to say, this is my house. He becomes pleased with us. And I think that we need to be careful that we um, are not arrogant in that and pushy. But I think as we yield ourselves up to God and endeavor to walk in his ways, that we can go forward with a sense of comfort and confidence that God is pleased with us as we go that route. It, I believe that it works against God's will as given here to use cosmetics as well as jewelry, which I mentioned a while ago, and clothes that grab attention. Being in Christ can free us from the bondage of culture. You know, their value system with their false beauty standards, um, they have pressures of advertising and such like that can appeal to people and, oh, it looks so glamorous. But we need to see it as it is. It's not of God. Someone has said, and I quote, that the, uh, the movie stars and the starlets of society that can look so appealing on the glossy magazine covers that 
they uh, basically have the morals of animals. A lot of those are so immoral and ungodly. We need to see them for what they are. Let's strive for the beauty that God values. The body is not for um, decoration, and it's not for display. And thirdly, then, it's not for desecration. You know, in our culture, there has been a rise in sensuality. And as they have uh, gone there, we see a decrease in the value of an unmarred body. As mankind, our body is the image bearer of God here on this earth. And the enemy has always tried to destroy God's work. If you think back in the Old Testament to the Baal worshipers and how they cut themselves at Mount Carmel, why do you think they were doing that? Uh, Just taking knives and cutting themselves. Um, And then we had the uh, possessed boy in the time of Jesus that was thrown by the demons into the fire. And we had um, also then the, the demonic man that in the time of Jesus also that raved and ran it and uh, ran naked among the tombs. And he also uh, was self-abused. Turn to Leviticus 19 and we'll read there a verse and that talks about some of this. And I realize this is Old Testament. And to my knowledge, we don't have a New Testament parallel. But as I'll, I'll read this verse and then I'll make a few comments about that angle. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 28. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. And so here we have the Old Testament law that lays down clearly for the Old Testament saints to not cut yourself out of desperation or to print any marks on you. And I think tattoos would certainly fall into that category. And but I believe as I think about this, that, you know, as we move from the Old Testament into the new, a lot of these laws actually got a little tighter, you might say, from God's perspective. Um, you know, let's think about divorce for a moment. In the Old Testament, God said, I winked at it, but now I'm I'm asking you to go back to the command of creation and that one man and one woman for life. And in the area of adultery, um, in the Old Testament, they were forbid from the physical act. In In the New Testament, it became more into the spiritual realm and said, if you even think about it, that you actually are guilty of the sin. And so I think in this particular angle that as the Holy Spirit has come and indwelled in the New Testament believer, I believe that God would be more concerned about the appearance of our bodies. And I I believe we can safely say that this could apply to New Testament Christians, that he would prefer to keep our bodies unmarred and unmarked and uncut. I believe the New Testament theology regarding the body must follow the command of have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And so, thirdly, the body is not for desecration. Now, let's think fourthly about the body is not for destruction. You know, um, the final act that is done to the body is burial. 
And even as uh, the quick acceptance in society of desecration is rather shocking, it, to me it's even more so how quickly cremation has become mainstream in society. Um, let's think for a moment just from a practical standpoint, you know, if two people were pro debating the pros and cons of cremation, why the person that was advocating it might talk about um, well, there's convenience, there's cost, you know, modern-day funerals just cost too much, and uh, there's burial space that's becoming a, of an issue, although out in the country I don't see that as a problem, but apparently in some cities it is possibly a consideration. But if you were talking against cremation, you could say, well, you, you have emotional closure and allows for the grieving processes to more fully work in if you can view the body and those type of things. And these could be used to argue one way or the other. But let's look at it simply from the theology of the body. And we're to show respect to our body as the, in the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that even after it's been vacated, it's not really ours to destroy, but it belongs to God. And thinking about historical precedent, for thousands of years, pagans have burned bodies and Christians have buried. And I believe that that also adds into the connection here that it's important that we respect our body even after it's gone, our, our spirit has departed. And it's a uh, lifeless clay, you might say. Um, it seems twisted to accept a pagan practice and that represents judgment to um, apply it to us as Christians in our bodies. Uh, in the Bible, as we read through the Bible, burning of bodies was seen in connection with judgment or with heathenism or with adultery, idolatry. And so I believe that God endorsed burial, and that's the way Christians have practiced it all through these many years. And so in summary, our Bible, or our body, I'm sorry, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was created by God for a purpose, and he, he possesses us. We're not our own. He has guidelines that he wants his property to be used for. So this is my house. I live in there, and this is how I want it presented. And it's important that we don't worship it, or we don't disfigure it, or we don't trash it. So we cover it to protect its dignity. And we create beauty with good works that come from the inside out. We respect and honor it as God's good creation. And we lay it to rest as a body, a temple in which God has resided.